Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. So if you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Open in your app. James is towards the back of your Bible. And it's a book that we've been going through over the last several weeks in our series called Faith Works, which is a play on words. Because, you know, we, we're talking about faith and we're also talking about our works, our deeds. But we're also saying that, hey, if you have faith, it works. To live a life of faith actually works. It really does. And so, as you're turning that passage to James chapter 2, verse 14, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or would everyone be surprised? Like, that guy's a Christian? <laughs> you know, like, that's surprising to me. I never would, have, never would have guessed. He's been incognito. There's the age-old story of the Soviet Union, you know, the former Soviet Union, where these masked gunmen stormed into a Bible study that was being taken place, it was taking place in underground, you know, in this hidden room. And they threw all of the Christians against the wall, all these people in the Bible study, and they had their guns. And they said, we know you're Christians, and we're obviously it's illegal. So if any of you would like to deny your faith, this is your chance or it's over. So if you want to deny your faith, you can walk out now and live. And so a few of them take off and they leave. And then they say again, if any, is there anybody else? This is your chance. And a few more of them, they leave. And they get down to this final group. All right, you guys, this is it. Are you willing right now to give your life for your faith? And they all stand there, unwilling to move, firm in their convictions. And at that point, the masked gunmen remove their masks. And they say, good, we're Christians too. We just wanted to see who we could trust. You see, there's something about not merely believing, but having the kind of faith where it's evident by your actions that you truly believe. That it's real in your life. Faith evidenced by actions. And so in our passage today, James is going to start off by asking a question. And then he's going to tell us how we can really know if we actually believe. And I think that's important. Because a lot of people struggle. Like, do, do I, am I really going to heaven? Or am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Do I really have enough faith? And well, when people ask that question, I usually say, well, I mean, if you're worried about that, there's a humility in your heart. I'd say you probably shouldn't worry about that because that shows that you really care and it's important to you. And so by, by definition of that, I, I think that you, you, it seems like you really believe. It's the person that's very cavalier that I'd be worried about. But at the same token, I think it's a legitimate question. I mean, what do we talk about when we talk about the kind of faith? Is it merely believing in God or is it actually something more? And so this is what he's getting at here. And so he says in verse 14, he asks the question, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he starts off by saying, what good is it if you have faith, but, but no works? Is, is that a faith that can save you? Is that the kind of faith that is seen by God as, as something real? And it's a bit of a problem, the question, because if you've been hanging out here for a while, you know that we're big on the concept of grace. We're really big on it. And we know that what saves us is not our works. Good deeds can't make us right with God. You can't sit there and say, well, here, here God, all the good things I've done, therefore I deserve to go into heaven. I was talking with my son about this, and he brought up a really good point. And he said, you know, if, if works could save you, then we'd be in a position where God owes us, right? God would owe us. Like, well, I, yeah, you would say, hey, look at God, all these things that I did, where's mine? Come on, come on, God, you owe me. You owe me heaven, you owe me eternal life, you owe me all these wonderful things. That's kind of a weird thing to think about, right? We know that God doesn't owe us anything. And so there's several reasons why we believe that our good works don't save us, you know, alone. In fact, it says, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast, right? No one can brag. Titus 3.5 similarly says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So you see these words like grace and mercy and, and, and not by works. It's a gift of God. And those are verses, by the way, that you should just kind of have just in your arsenal. You should have those memorized just always in the front of your brain. Like they should be like song lyrics that you have, right? To, to continue to reinforce this principle. And similarly, we also know that our good works, even if there was something about our good works that could somehow get us into heaven, our, none, our good works could never even get us there because they're really not that good. In fact, it says in Isaiah chapter 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of us, like the most, the greatest person in the world is included here. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So even the greatest things you can think of that you've done in, in relation to a, to a holy God are just not that great. And of course, the, because they're, we're all intermixed with our own pride and greed and, and lust and anger and bitterness and all that kind of stuff that's wrapped into all that. And so even the greatest things we can hand to God are just not that great. So you can't depend on them. And you shouldn't depend on them. There should be no one here who thinks in their heart that they've lived life in such a way that God would roll out the red carpet for them. So what are we talking about then when James talks about this idea of faith without works is dead? Well, he isn't saying if you want to go to heaven, you got to do a bunch of good stuff. Instead, what he's saying is if you call yourself a Christian and you say you have faith, but you aren't doing anything that gives any evidence of that faith, then really, what good is your faith? It, it's not really worth anything. And I would really question that if you actually have the kind of faith that, that God is looking for that, that actually produces anything of value, right? So this is the kind of thing that we're dealing with. So there's a lot of nuance here, and, and there's, it's kind of, we're talking about two sides of the same coin. So as we walk through this, what we want to really do is answer the question, kind of the same question that James put out. How do I know that I have this kind of faith that can be called saving faith? How do I know that this is the kind of faith that, that, that is an indicator that, that I'm actually someone who's banking my life on the fact that Jesus is Lord and that I truly believe? Well, let me give you three things that we can really talk about to answer that question. The first thing we need to clarify is that 
it, it's not merely believing in God. In other words, not merely acknowledging his existence, which is what like 80 or 90% of the world or at least America seems to do. They always say that number is going down. But really the overwhelming amount of population would say, yeah, I believe in the old man upstairs, right? I believe in that, the higher power. They, they acknowledge the existence of a God. But if you look at verse 18, James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's a very interesting statement, by the way. Show, show me you believe, show me that you actually believe by, and not do anything. That's impossible. I'll show you how I believe by what I do. You believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, nice job. You acknowledge, you know, it's like the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So you, you acknowledge God. That's great. Even the demons believe and shudder. So in 1860, Frenchman Charles Blondin was the first man to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls, the distance of some quarter mile. And so he does this, of course, to the complete amazement of a crowd who had gathered to watch him. And he didn't just walk across. He went across on stilts. He went across blindfolded. He went across on a bicycle. I mean, this guy's crazy. So finally, he's getting everybody together. And he says, hey, who thinks I can walk a guy in a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls in a tightrope? And everyone's like, oh yeah, we believe. We, you can do it. Absolutely. Yeah, we want to see this, right? This is great. And he says, awesome. Who wants to volunteer? <laughs> and the crowd fell silent. <laughs> of course the crowd's going to fall silent. Because you can say you believe, but until you get in that wheelbarrow over Niagara Falls, do you really believe? I mean, seriously, do, do you really believe, right? See, that's the, that's the thing. That's what we're kind of drawing out here. And so James makes the point that, look, the demons believe in God. They acknowledge the existence of God. And when they contemplate his holiness, they shudder. So in some ways you can say, well, if you just acknowledge God, that you have the same level of faith as a demon. But the demon almost goes a little bit further because at least they shudder. At least they freak out a little bit. Like, ooh. But there's a lot of people who think about the fact that there's a God who created the entire universe and it has absolutely no emotional impact on them whatsoever. So really, it's like he's going, look, even the demons are kind of like, got it more than you do. If there's, no, if there's just no reaction at all, it's kind of interesting, right? So if we know that merely acknowledging God's existence is not really faith, it's just two different things, then how do we know what that faith really looks like or what it really is? Well, I would say this. Instead of just believing in God, it is I will have a pattern of long-term obedience over the course of my life. In other words, as I continue over the course of my life, I, I, may, I won't be perfect per se, but I'll be able to connect the dots and have a pattern that will indicate belief based on my obedience and almost well, I will become surprised by the things that I do as I progress in my life as a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. So look what he says in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? I love that, right? It's like, they're politically correct there. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. 
And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, again, this is like we have to nuance all this stuff because this is a little bit like, well, wait a second, just said faith and not works. But you kind of see what he's getting at. So he gives an example. He gives the example of Abraham. So Abraham would have been a figure that would have been easily recognizable to them, like, you know, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln is to us or whatever, like Martin Luther King Jr. It's like, we know these figures because we've grown up hearing their stories. And so Abraham would have been the same way. But because not all of us know what he's talking about, let me give you a little bit of background. So Abraham was called by God to be the leader of the entire Israelite nation, to basically be the beginning of the entire Israelite nation. And so God comes to him at some point, who's the father, you know, he's the father of the Israelites, and says, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love. Now that's a huge language, by the way. It literally says that. Take your son, your only son, the only one you got that you love with all your heart, and I want you to take him up on the mountain, and I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Now this would have been crazy for Abraham to hear for a variety of reasons, right? Not the least of which, because God promised him that he'd be the father of a great nation. And in order to be the father of a great nation, you're going to have at least, need to have at least one child. And they had waited forever to have one child. And so now he's like 85 and she's 75. They finally have this miracle baby. It's like, okay, God came through on his promise. This is amazing, all right? This is great. Here we go. And now uh, here, here Isaac is and Abraham wants him, or God wants Abraham to sacrifice him? What is that about? Now this is normally the time that you would take things into your own hands, right? You'd say, okay, all right, God, I have ridden this train long enough. This is where I get off because you have officially lost it. I am not going to do this. This makes absolutely no logical sense. You think that that was what most people would probably do. Because here, you, we wait our entire lives to have a son. You want us to kill him? And then you're, I mean, but it doesn't make any sense. But as James says, what does James say in the passage? He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So like there's this actual real belief and it was manifest, it's, it manifested itself in, this, this, in these acts of like a pattern of obedience. So he wasn't perfect. And you have to understand, Abraham is not a perfect dude. He, I mean, you, you see these kind of, if you read about his life, there's periods where you go like, dude, what were you thinking? Like you had this great calling and everything else. And like, why would you make that decision? So he, he made some tactical blunders throughout his life that you think would be beneath him, but he's a human being. But in total, you see evidence that even in his imperfection, he just believed God. And it was actually counted to him as perfection, which is crazy. But there's a reason for that. And it's kind of wrapped up in the reason why he wanted, God wanted him to sacrifice his son. So what happens is, here's Isaac and Abraham. They're walking up the mountain and Isaac's like, so uh, where's the sacrifice, dad? And he's like, I don't worry about that, son. <laughs> we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, right? And they get to the top of the mountain. There's no sacrifice. And all of a sudden Isaac realizes, and he's a young adult at this point. You know, he could have ran away himself probably. But no, he submits to the will of his father. Abraham's there, lays him on the altar. He's about ready to drive a dagger through the heart of his only son. And all of a sudden the angel of the Lord says, wait, stop. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the sacrifice. And so then they see this ram caught in a thicket. You know, his horns are caught up. And so they see there's a ram. It's right there. And God says, use that instead. So they put that on the altar and they sacrifice the ram. And the son goes free and everything else. And so what happens is, it's this amazing picture of what God's going to do. Now, the reason that's important 
is that Abraham actually had faith in God. And somehow he thought, well, I, th- I know God's going to keep his promises, even though he's asking me to do this, and I don't understand it at the time. But you never would have known that were it not for what he did. But even more than that, here's the thing, guys. There's this whole picture, this narrative that's established in that act. In other words, for Israel to really see the reason why it exists and the foreshadowing of what whole God's entire program is going to be, Abraham needs to go through with this to demonstrate to himself and what's going to be the whole Israelite nation that what? The Lord will provide. And so in a stunning flip where every other belief system out there, you actually did sacrifice your own child because their God said, no, we're not providing squat. You're providing everything. You're the one that sinned. You're the one that's sacrificing. That's not God's message. God's message is you're the one that sinned and I'm the one that will provide the sacrifice. I'm the one that will sacrifice because of my love for you. And that is the revolutionary message. And that is the message that makes Israel unique in all the world. And that's the message that they are to carry on and is to be manifested and then fulfilled in the Messiah himself. So even in with Jesus, what do we see? The Lord provides. So you don't have to crucify yourself. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to wonder, am I good enough? Because that's already been taken care of by Jesus. And that narrative is established powerfully through that story, but it never would have happened had Abraham not taken the step of faith out of obedience to God and demonstrated it. So is it Abraham proving himself to God? No, it's really Abraham proving himself to himself and really God proving himself to Abraham. And that's that's what the important thing is. So in the journey of faith, you guys, God's gonna ask us to do things that don't make any sense. He's probably not gonna ask you to sacrifice your own children, so don't worry about that even though sometimes, you know, you may want to, you know. Here, God, you want this one? <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Anyway, but you're going to get curveballs thrown at you throughout the course of your life, and you're going to say, what now? So, you know, we sent 47 or so middle schoolers off to camp this morning, off to Hume. We had 50 or so high schoolers come back, or, you know, 50 plus come back this last week. They were spent all week at camp. And I want to say thank you to those of you who um, supported us in the golf tournament, came out and did that because the money that you raised for the golf tournament went directly to help bring down those costs and allow more kids to go to camp. And those of you that support our, our coffee ministry out there, um, you, you, when you tip them and all that kind of stuff, those funds go to support kids going to camp, brings down the cost. And it's so important. You say, well, what's the big deal about a week spent at a Christian camp, and I believe, you know, Hume Lake Christian Camps is where we send our kids to go to Hume, San Diego. I think it's the best camp on the planet, personally. I think it's fantastic. But the reason that camp is so important is that it captures young people at pivotal points in their lives and makes them wrestle with the issue of here you are now at this, at this data point in your life. Here's where you are now. And here are the things that are going on. And here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Are you on board? You see, because that's one of the reasons why at Compass, we don't put a lot of stock I mean, it's cute and all, and it's, it's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to discount it. But when like a four-year-old, three-year-old kid, you know, says, I accepted Jesus in my heart, and well, that's great. And that's wonderful. But what happens is there's so many adults later on who go, yeah, and they talk about their spiritual journey. It was like, you know, I, I, I became a Christian at four years old, but man, my, by seven, it was just down the drain, you know. Like, I was backslidden Christian at seven years old. It's like, here I am, I became this wonderful Christian, like I got it, and then I just went off the trail, and they see this, their lives as like a spiritual failure, and it's like, wait a second, 
you, 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 you know, no offense, but you're four years old and, and you, did, you knew what you knew then. You knew about God as much as you could know about God, that he was related to like, you know, your parents taking you to church and, you know, you got a donut. And, you know, if you said, I love Jesus and you, want, and you wanted to respond, you were compliant and your parents were proud of you. And that, that's about the extent of it. There's nothing wrong with that. But life gets more complicated. The lines get blurry. So here you are. Now you take a kid who's like 12 years old or 15 years old or 18 years old and you say, well, here you are. Now the dimensions of your life have totally changed. Now you have an acute awareness of the opposite sex. You're, you know, maybe you're dealing with the, the fallout of your parents' divorce or there's some substance that you can take now to alter your mind. And so here you are living this different life. What are you going to do now? Do you still believe? Are you still on board? And that's a very significant time in the life of a young person because everything has changed so much. And it's not the issue of, oh, you can lose your salvation. I, you know, it's a, and we don't believe that you can lose your salvation. And it's very clear why. Because I believe that you can't turn a, a, a butter, a, a, once a caterpillar is turned into a butterfly, it can't turn back into a caterpillar again. Okay, once you've gone from death to life, you can't go back to death again. The Holy Spirit of God lives in each one of us. And he's not going to abandon us. The Bible says, he, uh, if we deny him, he, um, oh no, if, he says, uh, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He, li- he is in this beautiful picture. God joins himself with us. It's an amazing thing. And he doesn't abandon us. But at the same time, we, with this whole issue of, 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 you can look at the past, but you really have to ask yourself, where am I now? So you don't, you don't rest on, a, on, on words you said when you were four years old. That's really not that important. What's important is where you are now. And so there's these data points, right? And they're going to get more intense. And so some of us are at a place, you know, and it's, if you want to look at the technical term, it's really called liminality. And it's like you're, you're, you're on one side, and you, if, when you go hiking, you jump from one side to the other side, and there's that middle. And you're safe over here, and you're safe over here. But you're not safe when you jump. Because when you jump, you can't turn around in midair and go back because that defies the laws of physics. But you haven't yet landed on the other side. And so you don't know if you're going to make it. And it's in that spot where that liminal experience is, where you're fully engaged, where you're in that, in that real-time growth. And some of you are in that spot right now where you're like, I have left where I was, the safety of what I knew. I've been lurched forward and I haven't yet landed to the other side. And I am floating in midair and I don't know if I'm going to make it. And the key question is, in that moment, is God still God? See? And some of us are in that place right now, and you're like, Tim, you hit it. That's, that's where I am. I, I don't, I don't, I can't see the other side yet. And while it's scary, it's also the place where most, most growth happens. Most of the growth in your life happens in liminal spaces. It happens in the in-between of here to there. It happens when you're not sure about if you're going to make it to the other side. And so you're kind of hanging on to God at that moment. And those are defining moments in our lives. And so, if you're in that spot, you have to really kind of ask yourself, what am I doing here? And and is what I say I believe actually being manifest in my life? Are my decisions demonstrating that? You know? And I think the other thing that's really important about this too is God wants us to do he wants us to do great things with our lives. And I don't mean famous things. I don't mean Instagram-worthy things. Because most of the things that are really important that move the world forward, no one really knows about. And most of the stuff that people dwell on is just stupidity that will be here today and gone tomorrow. You look at the old newspapers, right? Today, they're 
like they, you know, they could be a dollar. And tomorrow you line your bird cages with them, right? Because they're useless. But we don't have newspapers anymore. But that's the thing, right? So he wants us to do great things. And sometimes I think what happens is we say, well, Christianity is about saying Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and then I'm going to kind of manage my Christianity from now until the time I die. In other words, as long as I don't color outside the lines too much, you know, I don't do anything stupid, between now and the time I die, I'll go to heaven and all will be well. So it's like a big giant box I can check. And, and, you, and you think that's really the extent that God wants from you. It's like, well, that's, that's not it at all. God actually wants us to do great good in the world and to do incredibly powerful things. And again, most of the things that, that are done are not, we're not talking about famous things. It's like, like this. Like, I thought about this this morning. I think I might have said t- to my wife kind of offhand, I'm like, you know, whoever invented air conditioning needs to be given, like, they're probably dead now, but I hope, like, they, why don't we make a statue of that guy, right? <laughs> you invented air conditioning, right? But you, you should have more followers on Instagram than anybody. We, we should have a, a monument in Washington, D.C. in your honor, or at least in Phoenix. Like, you invented air conditioning. That's a really wonderful thing, right? But we just go, ah, you know. So there's, there's powerful things. In other words, for you, making godly decisions over the course of your life will mean changing the trajectory of your family heritage, perhaps for five and six and seven generations. I just talked to a guy who came out of last service, and he says, Tim, I haven't had a drink in nine months. I haven't smoked weed in nine months. And I, man, I shook his hand, and I said, that's awesome. He goes, he goes, you know what? He said, he and you told me, he said, he said, I was hanging out with my family last night. And he goes, they were all, my cousins, they were all drinking. And, uh, and I said, hey, I'm not judging you. I just, I don't do it. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not judging you. I don't do it. And he said, then today, some of them were texting him and asking him about Bible verses. Why? Because the very fact that he's doing something or not doing something was sending a message. We're sending a message, right? This dude believes something and we're seeing a difference in his life because he's not a drunk anymore. He's not high anymore. And his wife is happy now because I'm looking, she's, got, she's beaming, right? I mean, she's got a smile on her ear. She's like, I got, I got a real husband now. I don't have an idiot. And she's excited. And I put my hand on that guy's shoulder and I said, man, you're, that's exact. That's the life of faith. It's not just like raise your hand if you want Jesus. It's about making decisions over the long haul of your life that begin to bless the people around you. And you can change the trajectory of your family for generations. And no one's going to write an article about you. And so we should be trying to do things that do great good in the world and not just live in fear of messing up. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about taking great risks and endeavoring great things and having huge vision right where you are. So it's not only believing, and not really believing in God and, and by way of, of, of a pattern of obedience, but there's even a broader concept too, and that's the second point. The kind of faith that, that saves us, the kind of faith that's legit, that's genuine, is the kind that lives under the authority of a new kingdom. Lives under the authority of a new kingdom. And I'll read this passage and we'll go back to that point just in case you want to write the rest of it down. But this is what he says in verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So yeah, so it's, it's now why do I say living under the authority of a new kingdom? 
Well, he talks about Rahab, who's a prostitute. She's a sex worker. Not exactly a person you think that the Bible would hold up as a great example. But he does. But again, someone that would have been well-known in their culture. So what's, what's the story? Well, she lived in the city of Jericho, which was an evil place, and the people there did evil things, and Rahab was no exception. But God had told the nation of Israel that they're going to have the promised land, and Jericho was in the promised land. Jericho, the people of Jericho, had to get out. That's the way that was. There's a lot of tribes doing very evil, awful, wicked things. And God wanted that land to be reserved for his people that were going to give him glory and be a blessing to the world. And so there were some rough things that had to happen in order for that to happen. And one of them was they had to get rid of Jericho. So Joshua sends spies over to Jericho to scope the place out. And while they're there, you know, Jericho isn't a very big city. We think these places are huge. They weren't giant metropolises. They were pretty small. And so the word travels that, you know, there's two guys no one's ever seen before that showed up at this place, and they end up at Rahab's house. So the king of Jericho sends his FBI agents basically over to Rahab's house, knocking the door, little suits, you know. Who are those guys that were here? Where are they? Oh, uh, they're gone. You know, if you, if you leave, they left a couple hours ago. If you run fast, you probably catch them down by the Jordan River. All the while, she's hiding them up on the roof, right, underneath some of the flax stuff that they use for the roofing. So she's got them hidden up there. Now, why does she do that? Why would she take that kind of a risk? What's the big deal? She explains it. Now, it's lengthy, but it's important, so we're going to read the whole thing because it's crystal clear as to why she does it and why James puts her in the story. And this is what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land Melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were behind the Jordan, of Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That statement right there is huge. What she just said, the Lord your God, he is God. Not the gods of Jericho. Not the gods I grew up with. Not the assumptions I've been living with. See, she makes this profession. There is a statement of, he is actually the one who's truly in charge. And she comes to that place. And then she continues in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as if I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Amazing. So when the Israelites finally invade Jericho, they spared Rahab and her whole family and took them in and, and they became Israelites. And one of the most beautiful pictures of God's redemption, you see Rahab, she becomes in the line of Jesus Christ. She becomes Jesus Christ's great, 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 great grandmother. Or whatever. That's crazy. But why? Because she believed. She believed God and it was evidenced by her life. Now it's important that we don't miss this very huge thing that we get out of this. Because if you notice the language, she says, we heard and our hearts melted. In other words, collectively, we were really scared because we knew you guys were coming. But as far as we know, she's the only one who did anything about it. Isn't that weird? So it wasn't just an acknowledge. They, they all acknowledged, like they all knew there was another kingdom that was coming that was more powerful than their kingdom, but they stayed under the authority of their king. And you got to wonder why that is that they did that. 
Then they all heard the rumors. They all freaked out, but they fought the Israelites anyway. Why would you do that? It's, it's, it's the same kind of thing as the tightrope guy. It's the same kind. Of, it's like, oh yeah, I believe, but I ain't getting in the wheelbarrow. Oh yeah, I believe that this nation is coming, but we're going to fight against them anyway, even though they're more powerful, even though it's clear that the real God's on their side. Why would they do that? That's a scary thought when you really think about it. Because that's the way many people are. They believe in God. They, and they say, oh, I believe in God. But there's a refusal to actually do it. And they, they even believe that maybe someday they'll be held accountable to God. But it's like, oh, I'll deal with that later. Like, what, do you mean? What, do you mean? what do you mean later? I mean, seriously, what do you mean later? Have you looked around objectively? Those of you who are empiricists, like, I'm all about what's actually real. Well, let me tell you what's actually real. There's a glut of people who were alive 10 years ago who are not alive now. Where'd they go? Where are, they're just gone. Poof, they're gone. Where'd they go? No, if you're a real objective reality kind of person, you better stare that square in the face. But if you don't, a lot of people just go, close their eyes, put their hands over their ears, go, oh, I don't want to hear it. That's not very objective if you ask me. But see what happened. Rahab left the rules and customs. She betrayed her own people. She betrayed and she left the rules and customs and authorities of her kingdom to follow the other one because she believed in the power of the other one. Very, very important. If you can understand what Rahab did, you can really understand the call that Jesus Christ puts on all of us because it's not just simply a, okay, I get it. I'm not gonna like drink anymore and get wasted and like drop F-bombs and be mean to my wife. I'm just gonna kind of show up to church now and put a fish sticker on my car and see Jesus is Lord and whatever else. That ain't what it's about. It's, it's a shift in kingdoms. It's a denial of the small G gods you've been worshiping your whole life that, you, that are so ingrained in your DNA, you don't even know you're worshiping them anymore. And you surrender those things. You lay them aside to follow the new kingdom. And she was the only one whose faith led her to go against her own nation. See, that's an amazing thing. And one of the things I worry about with us is that the... The, 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 when it comes to the issue of faith and works, the longer we live, the more we settle into habits and patterns that we've been living with for our whole life. And so you really, this is where self-examination really comes in. You really have to stop and ask yourself, when you're faced with a difficult decision, or you come to that crossroads, and some of you are at that juncture right now, where it's like, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? And you don't even realize, it's like trying to convince a fish that they swim in water. It's like they just... What's water? It's like it's all around them, right? It's like, no, actually you live in a, a bowl. But they don't know that. They just assume that everything is water. And so the gods, the small g gods of, of sex and of, of materialism and of, of all these things that we find our security and identity and we just take those things for granted. And so when it comes to being, oh, yeah, I believe in God, but I serve these gods over here. So you really have to stop and ask yourself when you're faced with a decision, is anything about this decision coming from a, a subtle almost unconscious idolatry. Is, the, is there unconscious idolatry that's happening? It's like, actually, the reason I'm doing this is muscle memory. It's muscle memory to bow down to the God of, you know, whatever is going to make me feel like I'm successful or accomplished or, or needed in the world or whatever. The approval of others. That's just an unconscious God as opposed to, no, 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 that's, those are old gods. Those are bad gods. And by the way, those gods are getting conquered by the real God who's establishing his kingdom. And I want to be on his team. See, that's, that's, so when we talk about faith and works, it's nuanced. It's not just like, well, I'm going to do good things. It's like, wait a second. 
my whole life begins to change. And I actually start looking different from the culture. I start looking different from the people around me. And you're going to see that as you follow, just like the example I said before, of the guy in his own family, he looks different than members of his own family because he hasn't had a drink and he hasn't smoked weed. And his life looks different now than the people he used to run with all the time. And that's, is that going to make it hard and awkward? Sure it is. But it's also him living out his purpose because he has now become, as Jesus says, a fisher of men to be able to be a, an example. And it could end up being the catalyst for changing their entire lives. So it's not just about, you know, staying on the straight and narrow. That's so dumb. It's about, it's about living into this new kingdom. And living by its rules in such a way that sets people free. See, the issue with Rahab was that Rahab wanted to live. This was her shot at life. And see, that's the point. The life of faith is the life of life. The life of faith is the one that is the life of freedom. The life of faith is the life of depth. The life of faith is, is the life of, of totally new eternal possibilities. And the light being turned on in your soul. So there are two camps of people, really, that this is for. And I'm done. The first camp, people, is those who, and there's, there's some of you guys in here, and I get it. I mean, it's like the common thing. So, you know, but just to really think about this for a second, that you actually think that your good works are what God's going to judge you by. Like, you're going to be judged. Like, whether or not you get into heaven is totally dependent upon you. And, so, and some of us are kind of confident. Like, yeah, I'm pretty good comparatively. You know, like God grades on the curve. But he doesn't. Because we've talked about this before. So, if that's you, you, you need to come to a place, because all of us have been there. All of us need to come to a place where we humble ourselves. And we say, God, you know, there's nothing I could do. There's nothing I could do. No amount of hoops I could jump through. No catechism I could follow. No amount of doors I could knock on. No, you know, people I could hit over the head or blow up or whatever. There's no, there's no act that any kind of religion could demand of me that would actually satisfy your requirements. It's impossible. It's dumb to even think I could because there's sin in me. There's wickedness in me. And so I humble myself and I repent with a heart of true humility. And some of us need to do that today. You really need to repent and get over yourself. And if you don't do that, and it's amazing how much the Bible talks about repentance. It's, it's, it's so much less about works and so much more about a condition of the heart that is just hit in the head with the holiness of God and the unholiness of me and a sincere desire to say, God, I have nothing to offer you. I need your mercy. That's one camp. The second camp is those of us who have claimed that we believe, but you'd never know it. You know, there's no evidence to really convict. And, and so, so part of it's a self-examination to say, have I been hanging on to some some false gods. And that really requires stepping out of yourself and looking at your life objectively and saying, you know, I made that decision, but why? Who was I, who was I depending on? What was I, what was I hoping to gain from that? Not that you introspect everything in your life, but it really is an example. If you want to grow, you're going to look more and more like someone who's making decisions that are going to surprise yourself by how radical they are based on where you were and how different they look like than the people around you. You're just going to live differently. So which camp are you in? Where are you at? And then I think the final thing for us is those of us who just maybe we need to, maybe we've been playing it safe. And we, we got to realize, actually, God doesn't, isn't just like what I don't do. God actually wants me to do some powerful things right where I am, right here in Goodyear, right here in Litchfield Park in Avondale, in Buckeye. 
to do some powerful things in my family. God, help me become a person that lives out my faith. That's my signal. Not totally joking. Not joking. But I, I have gone a little bit over. So, Sorry. That's what you get for coming to 11 o'clock. But keep coming because you get the best stuff right now. Let's pray together. God, some of us need to humble ourselves. For those of us here saying, you know, I see grace. I see the Lord will provide. That's where I need to begin. I pray that they would do that. They would just throw themselves at your feet and, and know that it is the attitude of humility and repentance of that true sense of sorrow over my inability to even begin to, to follow you with, with any success. It's, that's not what it's about. And, and embracing and a gratitude of your love that you step in and you provide. and You're the one who gets the glory for that, not me. If there's anyone like that today, God, I pray they would just humble themselves and say, God, I need a Savior. Thank you that you provided Jesus and stood in my place. And I want to follow him because in him there is life. There's beauty, there's depth, there's restoration. People like Rahab, a prostitute, are called children of God, deeply loved. For the others of us that maybe we say we're a believer, but boy, you should see us on a Friday night. God, will you convict our hearts? Maybe there's some decisions we need to make that are going to be hard, some people we need to walk away from, some habits we need to break, some gods we need to surrender, some stuff we need to live without, so that we can really experience what it's like to know you and follow you. God, help us to be people who don't just believe, but who do amazing, powerful, rich serious things in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.